0: The first time I left our daughters alone with my husband, John, for a couple of days, we lived in Minnesota, and they were about four and five years old. Now, they dropped me off at the airport to fly to Chicago for a conference, and it was just a weekend kind of thing, and when I got home, I asked the kids, not John, to tell me everything. Even back then, it wasn't my first rodeo. So our daughter, Katie, our older daughter, told me everything in great detail. She said, Mom... Okay, as soon as we dropped you off at the airport, Dad took us to the gas station and he got us lunch. I said, he took you to the gas station and got you lunch? Yeah, we had to get gas and he got us lunch. He got us, you know, those things, they're they're like um, kind of brown and they look like um, corn dogs, except they have that white stuff in the middle. I was like, Twinkies? He got you Twinkies for lunch? Yeah, it was great. Well, John was a popular dad and it was a quick fix, but maybe not the best lunch. So my question for you this morning is, are you, like the Israelites, settling for Twinkies at the gas station instead of accepting the better manna that God is providing? Now, in case you're new here, a quick recap of our story. The Israelites are enslaved in Egypt, and Moses is called by God to lead them out against all odds, namely, Moses' own inadequacies and Pharaoh's power. But in spite of this, God is faithful. He provides. He provides his presence and the companionship of others, but they whine a lot, and they rarely cooperate with Moses. He provides his deliverance and protection, but... That's after years of abuse and death, and it takes a bunch of plagues and a scary escape and soldiers on their heels. God provides his guidance, but it takes 40 years in the desert to get there. And God provides physical food and water, but it's just weird. It's not the Twinkies they were used to in Egypt. It's all a little weird. It didn't really look like they expected or they wanted So how would we have written Moses' story, or our story, for that matter? We'd take out all the uncomfortable bits, right? All the parts that didn't go as we would like. Basically, we'd take out all the parts where we couldn't be in control, getting exactly what we wanted, when we wanted it. We'd choose Twinkies at the gas station instead of manna in the desert. Why is this important? Why should you care? Adam Grant says that the mental health scale goes from one end, depression, to the other, flourishing. He doesn't use the biblical language that we're using, but basically he writes that many of us aren't experiencing the bondage of Egypt, or depression, although you may be, and we're not experiencing the flourishing of the promised land, although you may be, but most of us are in the land between, which he calls languishing. Now, languishing is a no-man's land where we lack energy and motivation and vision. So if you're languishing, what are you hungry for in the land between? What are you praying for God to provide? Maybe you want God to provide direction. You want to know the exact plan with no more pivoting up and to the right now. That would be me. Maybe you want God to provide courage, wisdom, or patience for a hard decision. Maybe in this land between, you want God to provide healing, either physical or emotional or relational. Or perhaps you need strength and energy just to persevere through the uncertainty. Maybe God's provision will look exactly how you envision it and in the timing that you want it, but maybe not. In the land between, the desert, the Israelites wanted to be in control of what God provided and how and when. They wanted Twinkies at the gas station, but God had other ideas. We're going to take a look at Exodus 16, verses 11 to 20 and 23 to 29. Now, these are God's instructions about how he's going to provide food. Starting in verse 16, it says, This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it till morning. But wait a minute stop right here. I imagine the Israelites going, but, but wait, 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 what if, what if, what if there isn't something tomorrow? This takes us out of control. We, we're not sure if we trust you. We're not sure if we trust God. What if? Goes on in verse 20 to say, however, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Moses said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest. Now, this Sabbath rest is another thing that requires us to trust in the ability of God, to trust that God's got this. He says, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it to the morning. This one's going to be a little different for the Sabbath. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is the Sabbath of the Lord. You will not find any on the ground today. Six days you are to gather, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. This is about trust and control, right? Right? God doesn't make sense. He's not giving us Twinkies at the gas station, so we want to do it our own way. The need for control is just fear in fancy clothes, says Nicole Sachs. What are you afraid of? What do you fear that you're desperately grasping at trying to control? The Israelites don't really trust God's character. They're afraid that God won't really provide for them. So what about us? Now, John and I are new here, but we learned quickly that you guys are really smart. You're Stanford grads or brilliant entrepreneurs or Silicon Valley moguls. But sometimes smart can be the biggest stumbling block to faith because it takes humility to admit you don't know everything and you can't control everything. One of the greatest lessons of COVID for me has been that it's forced me to acknowledge that I'm not in control and I need to trust God daily. This lesson of daily dependence on the Lord is one that I think he has to teach us over and over again. Lamentations 3 says, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So, three lessons I think that we can learn about God's provision from the land between. The first one is that God's provision often looks different than what we envision. Recognizing God's provision, the provision of God, starts with trusting the character of God. When we trust his provision, we acknowledge that he is good. He sees what we don't see. He knows what we don't know. He is good at being God. He will feed us better than Twinkies at the gas station. Annie F. Down says, if you're hungry, don't let the internet feed you. So what's your source of provision to address hunger? Where are you eating Twinkies? Are you trying to satisfy hunger for affirmation on social media? Or trying to satisfy a desire for intimacy through porn? Maybe a desire for power you're trying to satisfy through workaholism or you're hungry for courage, and you're trying to get it through alcohol. My friend Mark Batterson asks this question. What percentage of your thoughts are a regurgitation of the news you're watching or the social media you're following? And what percentage of your thoughts are a revelation from the word of God? That's convicting to me. How much am I filling my mind with social media and news and how much am I filling it with God's word? In his word, in John 14, 27, he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I don't give it to you as the world gives. And he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. Are the As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, That is only going to be comforting and encouraging to us when we're sure of the loving character of God. But his provision often looks different than what we envision. The second lesson of provision from the land between is that the provision of God is about the way and the weight as much as the what. It's about the way and the weight as much as the what. God is committed to providing in a way and in a when that you need to be free. God provided for the Israelites freedom from slavery, but not in a way or in the timing that was easiest because he wanted to provide freedom from more than just physical slavery. Exodus 13, 17 says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though it was shorter. For God said, if they faced war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. God is committed more to our character development than to our comfort. You guys have heard about that fast pass at Disney World that allows you not to wait in line. I have some friends that were able to use that last week. How often do we want the fast pass straight through the places God wants us to pause for him to provide something we may not even be aware that we need? I am not a good waiter at all. As a waiter, you're not in control. I mean, when are you ever, really? But it feels worse when you're waiting. It feels like you can't do anything constructive. It feels like everyone else is going on with their life and you're on hold. But Most of us are waiting for something in the land between. I have friends who are waiting for a husband or a wife, friends who are waiting for a prodigal to return or for an acceptance letter or a baby or a diagnosis or a cure. Some are waiting for a job or someone to need them or a place where they feel like they'd be missed if they were gone. Something I heard Holly Furtick say a few years ago really stuck with me. She said, what seems like a pointless or painful waiting room can be God's most productive workroom. A waiting room can be God's most productive workroom. I love productive, but the work that we do while we're waiting is most often soul work the inside stuff that requires patience and obedience and discernment and cooperation with God. A few years ago, my mom had surgery. In the waiting room where my dad and I sat, the land between, they had this nifty flat screen TV, and on it were listed the patients who were in surgery for the day. And it tracked their progress from pre-op to surgery to post op to recovery room to permanent room and in addition if the surgery was long they'd send word out with a nurse to tell us how it was going now when i'm in the wait, it, when i'm waiting i could really use a spiritual progress monitor showing exactly how i'm doing and when it's all going to be over right but instead even in the comfortable clean lounge of a hospital wait waiting often seems like a lot more like we're the israelites wandering in the desert clinging to God in the hot sand, not knowing when the waiting will end, disoriented and desperate to do something. Every once in a while in the land between, we'll run ahead as fast as we can, but we realize we can't make it. We don't know where we're going on our own, and we go back to clinging. Clinging to God is the work of waiting in the land between. Clinging to God is the work of waiting in the land between. We cling and we say, Lord, help me to see you. Somehow, today, even for a second, Lord, help me to focus on your purpose and not my problem. So the provision of God is about the way and the weight as much as the what. The third lesson of God's provision for the land between is that his provision in the past can fuel your faith for the future. In 1633, Exodus 1633, it says, So, Moses said to Aaron... Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. Now, the word remember is found 240 times in the Old and New Testament. It's important. It's repeated a lot. My favorite place is when the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan into the promised land. The Lord said to Joshua, Choose 12 men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up 12 stones from the middle, Of the Jordan from right where the priests are standing, and carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. Joshua says, In the future, when your children ask you, What do these stones mean? tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial. So in our family, we have something we call the 12 stones book to record God's faithfulness. In it, we have just kept photographs and journaling of the major marking moments when we have recognized God's faithfulness. We can look back in that during hard times and be encouraged. Just in closing, I want to share a story uh, that happened when I was going through my most difficult land between time. It was a summer morning and I was desperate for God's provision. I had visited a friend in Wisconsin and I got up super early in the morning and I went down and sat on their dock on the lake. It was 2005, I was angry, I felt defeated and in addition to being unpredictable, God seemed like a mean God. It seemed like he was playing a game of cat and mouse with me. Provision seemed to be dangled and then snatched away dangled, and then snatched. It felt like he was a cat and mouse God. And I told him that. I cried, I prayed, I pleaded, I called out to God. And then I was still, listening for God's response. And in that stillness, I had this vague recollection of a portion of scripture that came to mind, a father and son and bread. And I searched my Bible and and found what I was remembering in Matthew 7, It says this, which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? If you who are evil know how to give good gifts, how much more will your father in heaven? Well, I thought, well, that's nice. Thanks, Lord, for that reminder. But it sure feels like you're still feels like you're playing a cruel game. And then still sitting on the dock, I took look up, looked up the passage in the message translation, and this is what it says. This isn't a cat-and-mouse hide-and-seek game we're in. I'm not kidding. That's the paraphrase in the message. I felt floored. I felt seen. I looked around thinking maybe I was on some cosmic punct. In response to this remarkable encounter with God, I wrote in my journal this. Although the images of pain that keep coming to mind are valid... I need to look at your word for accurate images of who you are in the midst of my pain. You are the tender father who stoops to pick me up as your little lamb, to care, to protect, and to heal me. I heard you say that this thing may seem like a stone, but it's not. I would never give you a stone. I give you bread, and eventually you'll recognize it for what it is. Feelings are valid but we need to synthesize them with a theological reality. Feelings can be in the car, but not in the driver's seat. The truth of God's word says Satan is destructive, but God is protecting, nurturing, and good. So wherever you are, like Moses and the Israelites in the land between, God sees you. He loves you. He sees what you don't see. He knows what you don't know. He is good, he is good at being God, and he doesn't play games. He will provide for you in ways that may not always be comfortable, but they're better than any Twinkies from the gas station. Now God's ultimate provision for us is his life on the cross, paying for our sins and asking us to remember this provision through sharing the bread and wine of communion, representing his body and blood. In preparation for taking communion, I'd invite you to reflect during the following song. There'll be some questions up on the video screens. and Let me pray. Oh, Father, you are so far above us. Your ways are not our ways. I pray that you would help us to trust you, to trust your goodness, and to receive your provision. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Single regret in search. His hand will provide he's always
2: So today we've been talking about the contrast between the, uh, the Twinkies that we love to surround ourselves and eat and, and the food God wants to provide for us, even in the land between. For 40 years, Moses saw quail drop from the sky and manna spring from the ground, every day fresh. And it took the people decades to get used to being fed by God instead of doing it the way they wanted. it. When Jesus comes into the story, in the same way he talks about being the bread of life, being the cup of salvation. And the very last time that he eats meal with those that he loves best, he demonstrates what love looks like. Jesus took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he said, this is my body, broken for you. Take it in remembrance of me. And when you drink this cup, You drink the blood of a new covenant, in my blood shed for you. So as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death and resurrection until he comes again. In whatever fashion you are able to share with us communion today, we ask that you would do so, not settling for the Twinkies of the world, but reaching, reaching for the provision of God for you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit, Amen.